going to say roll tide and keep it rolling. So, yeah. But uh, somebody asked, uh, Ms. Adams said, we're looking for a robust message out of you today. I don't know. I'm pretty worn out from the game. Might just be a snoozer today. <laughs> but uh, anyway. All right. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter number 9. Romans chapter number 9. We're going to, we're, we're come now down into verse 14, so we're coming to the second objection here that uh, Paul is uh, dealing with, and um, it's, there, these are real challenges here that Paul's uh, addressing, again, in light of Israel's program being interrupted and being suspended. And uh, he starts in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And uh, that issue here, the second objection to Paul and the new revelation given to Paul, and again we have to remember in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with Israel's present situation. In, with God today in the dispensation of grace, Israel has fallen. They stumbled. They've fallen. They've been diminished away. They've been cast away. They are accursed. Back up in verse 3 there where Paul says, For I could wish that myself were accursed. From the, Israel's status is that of accursed. So they have lost their special privilege and rights and standings with God. So when you preach that, and Paul does preach that, he, Israel begins to raise objections to Paul, especially in the early Acts period. By the way, for you and I, this is the religion. These are the denominational brethren, we would say. These are the religionists. They're, they raise these objections because they don't understand the word rightly divided. Don't understand, they're scriptural but not dispensational. So then what do they read? They, well, they'll read Genesis 12 where if you bless Israel, I'll bless you. And if you curse Israel, I'll curse. So what are they looking for? They're looking for a blessings from God. So what are they out doing? Blessing Israel. But they fail to recognize Ephesians 1 where we're blessed with all spiritual blessings. And Colossians 2, where we're complete in him. So they have failed to understand their identification. Again, they fail to recognize Paul's distinctive ministry and message. So they're out doing their thing. So for you and I, the issue is religion. For Paul, in the early Acts here, Paul's dealing with these objections. And they are real, real challenges to the, to the new revelation. So the first one we looked at was... The, the objection is God's word is unreliable. And Paul answers that, no, God's word has been working since Abraham. It's been working all along. And in verse 11, for the children being not yet born, having neither done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. How? Not of works, but of him that calleth. And we talked about the covenant theology and the Calvinistic ideas and so forth. And they use that verse to say, see, before the foundation of the world, God established the, everyone's life pattern because the verse says, for children being not yet born, you weren't there, he was. So he set this in so that one side's going to go to heaven and the other side's going to go to hell. And these group of people are the believers and these group of people are going to be the unbelievers. And he takes away the issue of free will, takes away the issue of choice. And the thing is, is verse 11, the elective purpose of God has nothing to do with what, whether you're doing good or bad. That's why it says not of works. It has nothing to do with you. It's God's elective purpose. He has a purpose in Israel. He also has a purpose in the church, the body of Christ. And because of that, 
Paul's demonstrating that, look, God's word is not unreliable. It's been working according to his purpose all along with Abraham. That's why it's in Isaac, in that seed line, and we looked at that. He's been working, doing this, and he's right now in going and doing something with the Gentiles. So he's here, and he's not violating any of his deity, of who he is, his character, his integrity. Rather, he's operating right where he is. Uh, by the way, come over to Micah. Find Micah. It's Jonah Micah. Micah 6. There's an interesting thing here about the question gets raised in why or who or how can anyone really challenge God? Because that's what Israel's doing. They're challenging God. And, you know, God is not worried about a challenge from, from man at all. Micah 6 Micah here talking, uh, testifying against Israel and letting Israel know why they're in the fifth course of judgment and so forth. Says something very interesting in verse number three. And again, God's not worried about a challenge. Micah 6 verse three. He's not worried about any of that. Actually, he welcomes it. In, in Micah 6, verse 3, the Lord says, O my people, and he says this through Micah, okay, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Okay, what have I done to you? Well, the fifth course of judgment. You offended, you broke the covenant, you broke the deal, now you're in, getting a judgment. Now, look at the last of it. Testify, what? Against me. You see, Micah's telling Israel why they're in the fifth course of judgment. And you know what God says? Let me have your challenge. Let me have your best shot against me. You guys are out here boohooing and worried and crying about all this. So, hey, come on, bring it on. Where have I violated my word? And the thing is, he hasn't. Now, when you go back to Romans 9... That's what they're saying. Wait a minute. God's word is unreliable. It, he ha, it isn't being carried out. Now, in verse 14, where we're at this morning, we're in the second objection, and that is, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. So now the accusation is God is being unrighteous. He's being unfair. By the way, the third op accusation or uh, objection is in verse 19, uh, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For, he hath resist, for who hath resisted his will? And that's the issue of God's being unreasonable. In verse 14, the second objection here, they're not questioning whether God is a righteous God or not. Okay? Notice the, 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 the question. Is there unrighteousness with God? It's not whether God's a righteous God or not. They know he is. The question, the challenge is, really, God's being unfair to us. And I'll be honest with you, don't ever ask God to be fair with you. I would, this is crazy. I would never say, God, you're being unfair. I need you to be fair. Because as soon as you say, be fair with me, what's, what's he going to do to you? He's going to be fair with you. And what do you deserve? <laughs> well, you deserve it, and he's going to give it to you. But the thing here is, is Paul's answer here, Israel's being little children. Think about that. It's, it's Christmas time, right? At the season, okay? And what happens? Little ki the kiddies go, this is what I want, and we get a little Christmas list. Do you know what happens if, if parents don't get anything on the Christmas list? What do the children do? Pitch a fit. You promised to get me that. That's what Israel's doing here with God. You promised. You promised us the stuff in verse 4 and 5, all of those, those blessings and and promises given to us you promised us so why aren't you fulfilling the promise you promised us the adoption 
the, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the promises, the service of God, the Father. You promised all that to us, so why isn't it being fulfilled? You're not being fair with us. You said you would do this, God, and now what, what is Paul saying? What's Paul's message to Israel? He's suspended you. He's interrupted your program. He's not doing your program today. He's not fulfilling the prophetic scriptures. He's not doing. And I, you know, I raised three kids. You see the fits pitched every now and then as they're little. You know, pitching it in the, you know, the supermarket aisle, you know. One of mine started, I won't tell you who. But started, I picked him up by the nap of the neck. It, it wasn't him. Picked her up by the nap of the neck. Yeah, it wasn't her either. And, and you know what you did? Put him right in the cart, you know. You're going to sit right there, kid. Knock it off, you know. But see, that's what, but what is Israel's doing here in Romans 9 and what Paul's bringing up is they're pitching a fit. God's not being fair. He's being unrighteous. He promised us this, and he's not fulfilling it. And what Paul's going to do here is Paul's going to give two answers to this objection. And he's going to say, listen, verse 15, for he saith to who? To Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So the first answer is going to be what he said to Moses. Verse 17, for the scripture saith unto who? Pharaoh. So the second answer to the second objection is going to be to Pharaoh. What did God say to Pharaoh? Now, these are two different events. To Moses, what did he say? God has the right to be merciful to whom he will be merciful. What did he say to Pharaoh? To, to, to Moses, when, in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. What God is doing there literally, we're going to see it here in just a minute, is he's declaring an escape clause. Because this is not in the covenant, but this is in who God is. And he's in who I am, in my integrity, in my righteousness, I'm going to declare an escape clause. Now to Pharaoh, look at what he does to Pharaoh. So to Moses, God has a right to declare an escape clause. And to Pharaoh, he says what? That I might, verse 17... Even the same purpose have I raised thee up. Why did he raise up Pharaoh? Romans 9, 17. Why did he deal with Pharaoh? You remember Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not the Pharaoh in the, in the line of Pharaohs to come. You go back and read Exodus 1. He's actually a, a, a one of the major, there's 18 major types of the Antichrist in Scripture. And he's number one. And he's a usurper come out of Assyria. He doesn't even have the the bloodline of the, of the pharaohs. He doesn't know who Joseph is. He, he doesn't know any of that. And he comes in and he hammers on them. Why was he raised up? Look at verse 17. That I might show my power in thee, and with my name might be declared, and that my name might be declared all throughout all the earth. So you've got a secondary purpose going on here. So you've got two answers. You've got one, I'm going to show mercy to whom I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to declare an escape clause for you. And then I've got another, per I've got a secondary purpose happening here, okay? Now, these two separate events, again, Paul goes back in Israel's history, and he's demonstrating through Israel's history how God has dealt with Israel in the past. And if God is able to do this in Israel's past, then what is he able to do in their present? Same thing, because the past set the precedent. Everybody, right now, in, in everybody, the Supreme Court's listening to the adoption laws and stuff. They're out of Mississippi and all that stuff. And they're going, well, they can't change it because of the precedent of the court. Maloney, the court can say that we're changing it. They don't have to. Precedent isn't law. Precedent is just, okay, this is how they normally go. Okay? That's going to change. Maybe it does, maybe whatever it does. With God, he's setting a precedent that will never change. So Paul is, hey, here's how he dealt with you in the past. So guess what? He's going to do the same way today. Can he do it the same way? Yes, he can. If you look down at, well, in 915 to Moses, 
when he says this to Moses, this is Exodus 33. So we are after Israel is delivered from Egypt. He says this to them. Then in verse 17, when the scripture speaks to Pharaoh, that is Exodus 9. That is before Israel is let go, delivered from Egypt. So you've got two different events, two answers to the objection. It, you know, Paul's like, go ahead, challenge God. He has a legitimate and legal right to do what he's going to do. Which, by the way, what's he doing? He's going to a group of people, and he's showing mercy to a group of people who are doomed, the Gentiles. Israel should have never been shocked when God says to Israel, I'm not dealing with you anymore like I was. I'm setting you aside, and I'm going to come over here and deal with the Gentiles and do something new. They should have never been surprised. And I showed you in Acts 15, Peter says that. He says, look, guys, we know how God has reached into the Gentiles and pulled out a people after his name. We know that history, so we shouldn't be surprised. Yet, what is Israel? They're shocked. They're devastated. Oh, how could God do this to me? I'm his people. And off you go. If you, By the way, if you come down to verse 22, Paul, in the answer to the third objection he's going to say what if god willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to be to destruction what's the vessels of what wrath that's what they deserve and he that verse 23 and he that is uh that and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You see, what can, he's going to reach back into Jeremiah with the potter and the potter's wheel and the potter's clay. The clay stayed the same. What was it? It was just the fitting, what he was doing with it. We'll see that when we get down there. So in verse 15, when he says here, the first answer, I'm going to have mer I can have mercy... Verse 15, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And again, Paul's talking to Israel, and he says, look, God is able to do, if God is able to do that in the past, and he is, to be merciful to you, Israel, at the moment when, when Moses brought you out of Egypt, then he has, to be, he has the right to be merciful today to the Gentiles, a group of people who are doomed. They've been let go, turned aside, turned over. He has that right. And again, God is, you know, Paul here, he, I, legal, think about the courtroom. Here, the precedent here is this, and God is... He has the right to do what he's doing today. And you guys should not be surprised at all. You shouldn't be shocked. Even though, what are they, what are they doing to Paul? They're shocked. They're calling him a liar. They're throwing him in jail. They're, they're stoning him, leaving him for dead. They're doing all of this because they're in their religion. They're in the Jews' religion. They're not, they're not believing. They're in unbelief which in chapter 9 is ultimately what Paul's getting at. The problem isn't God, his word, or him, himself. The problem is unbelieving Jews, the unbelieving element over here. That's verse 30, 31, 32 there. So when you think about this, look at verse 16, 9, 16. By the way, in a minute we're going to go to Exodus 33, and we're going to go to Exodus 9, and you'll see what's going on, but let's just deal here with Romans 9. Look at 9.16. This is a great conclusion to this first answer to the objection. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That's wonderful. You see, God shows his mercy to whom he will show mercy. 
And his mercy has nothing to do with the recipients of that. It has nothing to do of you. It has to do with his elective purpose. What's he doing? What's he doing with Israel? What's he going to do with the church, the body of Christ? And again, I'll just remind you, the end of chapter 8 there, verse 28, 29, and 30, we saw his elective purpose for the church, the heavenly places. But notice here what he's doing. Willing. No, uh, uh, verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth. Your capacity to will him to be merciful has nothing to do with whether he's going to be merciful or not. Because you know what? You can't will God to be merciful. It just doesn't happen. Or the issue of runneth, nor of him that runneth. The, the running there, that is the issue of activity. It's the issue of energy. This is a great testimony of his mercy. Is he's going to go to the Gentiles who've been already deemed as doomed, no hope without Christ in the world, aliens. And you know what he says? It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with me and who I am and my mercy. So with the new, new revelation given to the Apostle Paul, who's now giving it to the nation of Israel, and he says, hey, Israel, you're <laughs> I, he was merciful to you. And I can, he can be merciful to the Gentiles. So really, how dare you question him? How dare you object to this? You should know better. God had, he had a contract with Israel, okay? The Abrahamic covenant. They offended God. They broke the contract. The contract required, a, when a breakage in the contract happened, it required there to be judgment. Okay? So God had every right to do what with Israel? Wipe them off the earth. Judge them. But he didn't. He does something different. He reaches in and he says, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to set a precedent here, and I'm going to claim an escape clause and that escape clause has to do with who I am. Because I'm a righteous, I'm a merciful, I'm a long-suffering God. And I'm going to do that. Okay? Now, verse 17, the second objection. He, he, the, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh... By the way, it's a fascinating thing, Paul. We'll look at this next time, if I remember. The scripture saith, verse 15, for he saith. See how God, verse 14, is speaking, and then in verse 17, God is called what? Scripture. Now, the Lord is the one doing the talking, because who is he? John 1, 1, and he's the Word, capital W. See? So your scripture is being connected all the way back to the Godhead. Here it is. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. So why did God go to Pharaoh? Well, to do what? That I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God go, Think about this. God goes to Moses. Think about the, the story. He says, Moses, you and Aaron go down there, and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses and Aaron walks in there, and they say, let my people go. And, and, and you know what Pharaoh says? Who are, yeah, who are you? Who is God? I don't know the God you're talking about. But what did Pharaoh do to Israel when they made that request? He intensified the persecution of the nation of Israel. He took away their ability to make a brick. He, all they had was straw. They had, to, they had to improvise. He made the days longer in their work. He whipped them. He, he began to persecute them. So think about Moses. Moses goes back to God. I declared the message. I told him. And look at what he's doing over here. He's killing our people. What's going on here? What's happening? So God talks to Moses, and he says, listen, I'm 
not going to immediately deliver Israel. I have some, and, and this is that wonderful delay thing in Israel's history. God says, I'm going to, Moses, you go get the people. But before the people can go, I got to do something with Pharaoh, and then he'll let them go. So there's a delay. So he, Moses goes to the people, I'm going to deliver you. And the people are like, yeah, let's pack the bags and go. And then it doesn't happen. And they're like, Moses, you're a liar. What are you, who is this guy? You, you with me? So God says, Moses, I'm going to, I'm not, I got a delay going on. I got something, I, I've got another purpose. I have a secondary purpose in dealing here with Pharaoh. And that's going to demonstrate something about who I am as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the Almighty God, as the, going to be the God of Israel. I've got a secondary person. So Paul, verse 14, they, what is the, God is not unrighteous. Why? One, he can have mercy upon whom he want to have mercy and compassion upon whom he can have compassion. And two, he, by the way, that's the precedent, the escape clause. And two, he's got a secondary purpose in what he's doing. There's something else happening, okay? Go back to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. And notice here where Paul is quoting from, where he's emphasizing from. Uh, Exodus 33, 19 is the quote, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord upon thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's the quote out of Romans 9, okay? The problem is, is there's a lot going on prior to that quote happening. And there's something here that God is doing in Israel's history, which is going to be a picture of what he's going to do with the Gentiles in the dispensation of the grace. Now, we don't know anything about the, the, the dispensation of grace because it's a secret. It's been hidden in God. But now that it's been made known and revealed, what can we do? We can look back and say, you see what he did there? That's how he can do this. You see what he did there? That's why he can do the dispensation of grace. Can't do that in the moment. In the moment when this has happened historically, Moses and Pharaoh, they have no clue about you and I, the dispensation of grace. They're just trying to get through the day and have a good meal. Okay? They really, that's what they're doing. Now, look here at Exodus 33. Look at verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto you, unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. So Paul's going to use some history here and jump in. Now jump down to verse 13. Paul goes up, I'm, I'm sorry, Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, gets the two tablets of stones. He comes down the hill. What, ha what, what does he hear? He hears a noise in the camp. What's happened? They went to Aaron and said, what? Make us a golden calf like we had in Egypt. They violated rule number one. You know, commandment number one is, you'll have no other gods before me. What'd they do? They set up a god before him. Verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found great... And this is Moses, uh, verse 12, and Moses said unto the Lord, Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now the, thy way that I may know thee and I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My present shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy present go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated." I and thy people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Now, the Lord here is angry. He's not happy. Moses is trying to smooth, smooth over some edges. So he can't show him his glory. You can't look on the face of an angry God. 
it would destroy him. So he's going to show him his hinder parts and stuff like that. But he said, verse 8, 19, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory pass by that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So that's what's going on. God's not happy with Israel, and there's a reason why. Because what what's going on in Israel? Well, come back to chapter 32. 32 and verse 7. 32 and verse 7. Verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, and which shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. You see, they, the human viewpoint, where did he go? He's not here. Instant gratification. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So they make the golden image. Now look at verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people. Notice how God calls him thy people. Fascinating. And then Moses says, They're not my people, they're your people. <laughs> and they got this little inner communication going back and forth. Get thee down for thy people. And by the way, why is Israel, why does God call them, Moses, thy people? Because what did Moses do? He led them out of the land. He's the deliverer. He's the prophesied deliverer from back in Genesis where God looks at Abraham and tells him, your people are going to go down, and there's going to be a great horror in Egypt, and then you're going to be delivered. Moses is that deliverer. He's the lawgiver. So, they, so they, that identification there. By the way, Paul refers to that over in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says we were all baptized on, under Moses and the sea and all that, the ignorant brethren statement there. What's, what's, hey, they have their identity. Israel as a nation has its identity with Moses and the law. That's why when you see history, they go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob quickly, and then they dwell on Moses' history. Verse 7. For thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have what? What did they do? They corrupted themselves. They're, they broke commandment number one. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, now watch, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. The Lord isn't happy. What's, what's he say to Moses? You go sit right over there, I'm going to wipe these people out. And you know what? i got every right to wipe them out. They broke the law. They broke the covenant. They broke the agreement we had on Mount Sinai. It's done. Exodus 19. It's done. They broke it. And that says, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you do, great. If you don't, I get you. They broke the agreement, Moses. He has the, he has the, the right to wipe them out, consume them, destroy them. Now watch Moses. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say? Now watch Moses deal with the Lord logically. What does the Lord want to do to Israel? Wipe them out. Moses says, but Lord, if you wipe them out, what is the Gentile over there going to say now? What's that Egyptian going to say? For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn, what, what's, what's that Gentile going to say? What kind of God is that to do that to people? What's going on here? He just brought them out. He's playing games with them. He just brought them out so he could wipe them out. What kind of a God is that? We don't want that God. We want our gods back. So he says, what? Turn from thy fierce wrath 
and repent of this evil against thy people. And again, repent, change your mind. It had nothing to do about changing your heart. It has to do with what? Okay, Lord, change the way you're thinking about your people here. What's happening? They're ready. God's ready to wipe them out. And Moses is talking him off the cliff, if you will, and saying, look, you need to change. Verse 14, 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses brings up the Abrahamic covenant. He says, remember your what, though? Remember your word. You gave your word. Verse 14, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. He changed his mind. Now, does God have a right to change his mind? Yeah, absolutely he does. He looks at Israel and he says, I've given you all this privilege, all of this special status, but what did you do? You're corrupted. They still stumbled. They still fell. They were diminished away. They're cast away. So you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to the Gentiles. And I have every right to do that. I have every right to go and change my mind and go and do something different. And you know what? In the end of the day, the, etern the elective purpose of God, the eternal purpose of God will never be thwarted in spite of the actions of man, in spite of the choices of man. He's willing to wipe out Israel here. Look at verse 32. Watch Moses. Verse 30, And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord peradventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. Now watch Moses. Watch what he does. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. Do you see the little dash there? That's a pause. That's a punctuational pause. And if not, what? Blot me. I pray thee out of the book, out of thy book which thou hast written. You know what Paul said in Romans 9? I wish I were accursed for my kinsmen. Moses is saying the same thing. Paul says, I love these people so much that I'm willing to be canceled. And that's what that dash there, it's a pause. He stops. He had the same love for Israel as Paul does. So he says, and the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, my angels shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon thee. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Later, down, later on, he's going to say generation to generation, third and fourth generation, and, there, and here it is. So when Paul, go to 33.19, when Paul quotes this, and when the Lord says this to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What, what just transpired in Israel's history? Israel is what? They're corrupted. They broke rule law number one. God had every right to do what? Wipe them out. But what did he do? He changed his mind. He set a precedent. And he chose to exercise or execute an escape clause. And that escape clause is, was to fall back on who he is as a merciful God. As someone who, as a God of mercy and of grace and of long-suffering. So he set a precedent here to do something that he hadn't done yet. He's never done this yet with, with man. Okay? 
Think about it. Adam and Eve fall. What did he do? All right, they're out. We've got to set the cherubs, kick them out of the garden. He never, he, Noah, we're going to kill him. Boom, boom. And off the history. He comes here. He's ready to wipe them out. He's got every right to. Moses says, ah, remember your word. And the Lord says, yeah, I'll remember my word, and I'll remember who I am, and I'm going to show mercy. He has the right to be merciful. Again, why didn't he consume Israel here? We just read it, because he's a merciful God. So when you come back to Romans 9, that's what Paul's reminding Israel of. When he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, Moses is like, you remember back there with Moses, you guys were on the edge of getting wiped out. But God executed a escape clause here and had mercy. Verse 16, 9-16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Such a soft conclusion to the answer of verse 15. And again, that issue is God's mercy is independent of the recipient's ability to will mercy or to will the fulfillment of the prophetic program or to will look over at Ephesians I, this, this verse pops to mind Ephesians 3 in verse 20 you see you, you and I have no regardless of our response to what God's doing it has no impact on what God's doing Israel looks over there and says man look at what a great people he's got and God says, no, I can wipe you out real quick and start all over. But I won't because of my word. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 20. When you, Paul tells us not to be high-minded and not to be, you know, a vain, you know, high, high thinking. Look at verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think. How many of you ever thought to ask God the Father to send God the Son to die for your sin? Man doesn't think that way. Man thinks about what? I'm good to go. You know, I don't need that. I don't need a Savior. But yet, what did God do? He goes, you need a Savior, and this is what I'm going to do. According to the power that worketh in us. So when you come back here, Romans 9, again, will... Your will, you don't, you're not able to think it, nor energy runneth ability, capability. And if you think about Israel, when Paul is stressing here in 9.16, is that the delay in Israel's program is the result of not Israel's lack of effort, because they sure had it down nor of them willing something to happen. Rather, it was God's mercy that did it. It was God's purpose and plan that did it. And it was independent of what Israel was doing. What did he want to do with Israel? Wipe them out. And yet now, he says, I'm going to have mercy on you. And he looks at Moses and says, okay, Moses, take them to the land. Let's go. And you know what? That's the same for you and I today, isn't it? it has, what we do in life has no bearing on what God's going to ultimately do with you in the ages to come in the heavenly places. What we do now impacts that, but he's still going to use you to, do, to accomplish his will. Verse 17, now to Pharaoh, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. We'll look at that verse next time. He, now when he says, verse 17, the scripture saith to Pharaoh, now there's a secondary uh, purpose, and this is the issue here of Pharaoh. Uh, come back with me to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. This quote, by the way, just so you have it, is in Exodus 9, verse 16. So let's go there first. Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh, Paul again goes back in Israel's history 
to Moses, that's after the deliverance. They've been out. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been out in the wilderness. They've been through the five testings. He's up getting the, the law on Mount Sinai. Okay? This quote to Pharaoh, this conversation with Pharaoh, is before the deliverance, where Moses is going to go in and say, let my people go. But God is using Pharaoh to accomplish something. Look at Exodus 9, 16, because here's the quote. And in every deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Now, that's going to be critical when you, talk, when you see a young lady by the name of Rahab show up. And she says some 40 years after this event, we've heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> and we fear him. Now come over to chapter 12. In, 12, in Exodus 12, God, Paul, again, bring, brings all this in because God is going to do something with Pharaoh. Israel needs to learn about this, and Israel needs to get it, but then so do you and I, and that's why Paul brings it up, okay? And it's a fact of what he's going to do with the adversary. Look at 12.12, 12. Exodus 12.12. 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. So this is the Passover night. The firstborn are killed. And against, notice those next three words, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Do you see that issue about against all the gods of Egypt, I will what? Execute judgment? There's a spiritual battle that's happening here. Okay, you got Exodus 12. Come back to Exodus 1. Exodus 1. You got Exodus 1. Uh, flip over to Numbers 33. Hold on to Exodus 1. Come on, you can, it's just Sunday morning. Exodus, Numbers 33, and then we're going to go get Isaiah 50, 52 here in just a second. Look at Exodus 33, look at verse 4. Numbers 33, 4, thank you. Numbers 33, 4. Numbers 33, 4. I was up last night having a great party, so just, you know, it was a, okay. Exodus 33, 4. For the Egyptian buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed what? Judgments. We'll go back there to Exodus 1. The use of Pharaoh to put on display his power and to make his, known, his name known throughout all the earth. What's the Lord doing here? He's dealing with the adversary. Look at Exodus 1. Get Exodus 1, and we're going to compare it with Isaiah 52. But Exodus 1, go there first. You guys on the tablets, you, you can't bend the page down like those in the Bible flippers. Uh, Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. That's the Pharaoh we're talking about. Now look at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 4. Isaiah 52, 4. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Wait a second. Who's the Assyrian? That's, that's the Antichrist, ultimately. That's the adversary. But when did he go into Egypt and oppress his people? Well, the only time Israel was ever in Egypt under oppression is Exodus 1. So you have a usurping king, a new king, a usurping pharaoh. And what's he doing? You, you get that? Exodus 1, 8 with Isaiah 52, 4. So in Exodus 12, verse 12, when the Lord says, I'm going to execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt... What were those plagues? How many plagues were there? Do you remember? 
Ten plagues. They were against the ten gods of Egypt. And what did he do with them? He wiped them out. He destroyed them. So what does he do with the ten major gods of, of, human, of, uh, of mankind? That, that's what they represent. He, what did the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do? What did the God of Israel do? He executed judgment on them. He wiped them out. And what Paul's getting at here is, look, guys, God's not being unfair to you. He's not being unrighteous to you. He, look at your history. With Moses back there, he can have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He set a precedent for the, the escape clause to be used of him being a merciful God. But he also did something with Pharaoh, and that was to demonstrate the destruction of the adversary because there's ultimately a spiritual battle going on. And when he describes this and going back to Pharaoh, it's so that, Israel will see the secondary purpose of what was going on then. Why did God have mercy on Israel? Why did he deliver Israel? Well, yeah, because they're his people and he's doing that, but also to look over here at the adversary and say, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. You're going to lose the earth. I hope you see that. When you come all through Old Testament, uh, look, at, look, look at Isaiah 14. I'll just use this passage just to show you. Oh, you know what? Let Isaiah 14 go. Let's go get Ezekiel uh, 28. Get Ezekiel 28. This one's a better one. All through your Old Testament, you see the historical moment happen. Ezekiel 28. And then you see that, you know what? He's really not talking to the historical figure. He's talking to the guy running the show behind him. Look at Ezekiel 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man, and not God. Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret. Do you realize that when, I, when Ezekiel says this to the prince of Tyrus, that that guy looks at Ezekiel and says, Say what? When did I say I was God? When did I do any of this? Because Ezekiel's not talking to the man sitting there. He's talking to who? The adversary behind him. Now, by the way, the prince of Tyrus here is a picture of the Antichrist. That's why he calls him a man in that verse. But who's running the... Who's running the Antichrist? Satan is. Look over at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Notice how we went to a king. Can you imagine? Ezekiel goes into the king and says, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, you better believe it, man. I'm good looking. Whew. Then he says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. And the king goes, Say what? I've never left my throne room, man. I've never left my kingdom. What are you talking about? Well, who is in the garden of God? Adam and Eve, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the adversary. So who's he talking to? The adversary. So all through Israel's Old Testament, what do you see? You see them talking to a historical figure, but in reality they're dealing with the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. And when Pharaoh is raised up, and what Paul is hammering home here is that Israel needs to understand that they, were, they are and were a part of a spiritual battle. They never got that. They never understood that. The little flock do eventually in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul brings this in for you and I. Because where are we headed? What does Ephesians 6.12 say that we do? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual wickedness and rulers of the darkness in the high places. We're involved in a spiritual battle. So when you come back to Romans 9, because it's time to quit, we're not done with these verses because there's a lot of stuff that gets hokey in here about Pharaoh, and especially verse 18 we'll deal with next time. Paul here He's looking at Israel, and he says, God's not being unfair with you. 
He's not being unrighteousness. He has the right to change his mind. And just as he showed you mercy instead of wiping you out, he's now looking over to the Gentiles and showing the Gentiles mercy. And he has a right to do that. But he also has a secondary purpose, and that is in dealing with the adversary. He's going to use Israel to take care of the earth, and he's going to use the church, the body of Christ, to, to reclaim the heavenly places. He's going to, Israel's going to be the key component here, the key agency, the key group of people, and you and I are going to be the key, the body of Christ. So you know why he's got to do what he's doing right now? It's because he's trying to get this established in a secondary manner. If he came along, the next objection, by the way, in verse 19 and following, is why didn't he just finish out Israel's program? If he finished out Israel's prophetic program without there being an interruption for you and I today, we would not be here today. We would be in the kingdom. So if we're in the kingdom, guess what he can't do? Form the church, the body of Christ. Now, he can do whatever he wants. He's God. But according to his word, he can't do that. So what does he have to do? He has to interrupt it. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, the interruption, and then go and deal and form this new creature, this new man, this new agency of humanity. Give us a new body so we can... Subdue all things according to his purpose, Philippians 3 says. So Israel, so Paul here, he's like, Israel, let's think about this. First of all, there's an escape clause. You, you know, you pay your mortgage. They, they ha, have you ever read the fine print on a mortgage document? Not usually. But you know that there's no escape clauses in there? What do you have to do every month? Pay the bill. There's no escape clause of, oh, yeah, okay, one day, yeah, we'll forgive it. No, you pay the bill. God says, my agreement, there's no outs except for who? Me. Now, if the bank came to you and said, you know what, we're going to just forgive this for you. Yeah, I'll be very right on. You know, We're just going to wipe the debt clean. Now, that's what God did with Israel. And what Paul's stressing is, is look, Israel... God, mercy, to, he can do to both groups now. He's right there. But you also need to understand your impact on the adversary because we have the same thing. So Israel, there's no need to object. God's not being unrighteous. He's not being unfair. He has the right to change his mind. And, but he also has a secondary purpose, and that's that spiritual warfare with the adversary that's going on. And that's why Paul brings in Pharaoh. He could have easily answered the question with Moses, but the answer would have been incomplete because there's two pronged to the answer, two facets. He can mercy to mercy, but also this warfare. Okay? So Israel really shouldn't have never been shocked. You and I should never be shocked. By the way, this will help us when we get over into Romans 11. And we start talking about the severity of God fell on them and, you know, all that stuff and that grafting in and out mess that everybody gets all tangled up in. Why? Because what has he just said? He can do what? Well, you get down in verse 22 and following, he can reshape the whole thing at the moment. Why did Israel fall? Unbelief. What's going to happen with the body of Christ? What ends the, church, what ends the dispensation of grace? The body of Christ never ends. But what ends the DOG? He, he returns. But what's triggering that? Romans 11 helps with that because of unbelief and because things begin to, begin to spiral. That's why you hear people, grace, it's coming, the end's coming soon. You know what? The end's been coming soon since Paul. And the Lord has done what? He's tarried. And I'll just give you, well, it's time to quit, but something to think about. That's because there's a little flock, a believing remnant in the church, the body of Christ. <laughs> there's a believing element that still holds Paul as our apostle, who then has the understanding of the word rightly divided, and that we have the word in a King James Bible for us. And when that begins to feather away, then guess what's going to happen? Now, it's, now he, can, he can do what he's going to do. When that happens, I couldn't tell you. But the closest point that you can come to identifying when he's going to return is Romans 11. And we'll look at that when we get there, okay? Anyway, all that at the end was just for you to think about. Don't miss what he's doing with Moses and Pharaoh, okay? Because he's answering that objection of, is God unrighteous? Is he unfair? 
He's not being fair. You promised. And he's like, you want my promise? I'll wipe you out, man. That's what you deserve. And he says, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be mercy, mercy, mercy. It's like the guy in the courtroom, judge asking, what do, you, what do you want? He goes, I just want mercy. And that's what Paul's doing here. Okay? All right. Dear Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who we are in your son. And we thank you for everything that you've given to us in your son. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.